from a very young age when I started writing, uh, the idea of storytelling was one of transcribing images into words. Uh, and this was until my uncle had pointed out that there might come a time or there will come a time in the future where I will be more excited by stories as opposed to words. I will be more excited by where my characters are going to go as opposed to what they're doing or how best to describe their hair, their clothes, their eyes, the cold. And so <clears throat> the journey of storytelling for me has been trying to figure out the trade-off between, and there is a trade-off between uh, describing the beauty of the moment and describing the beauty of a journey and trying to see if over the course of time, a balance can be struck between the two, uh, giving both as much importance as it needs, um, hoping that one doesn't overshadow the other into, I don't know, sort of crumbling dust. Uh, but yeah, I think broadly, this is what creativity, storytelling means to me. Hey everyone, welcome to the Closet Writer Chronicles. I'm your host Sangeeta, aka The Moody Marshmallow. You just heard our guest for today, Pratyush Parshuraman. Pratyush is a culture writer and film critic. He has been published by Film Companion, First Post and The Hindu. He has also assisted with research for the book, Khwaristan by Parmesh Shahani. Before all this, Pratyush graduated with a BA in Economics and South Asian Studies from the University of California, Berkeley and worked with the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, popularly known as JPAL. Tune in to hear about his fascinating journey and his thoughts on a variety of subjects. Hi everyone, welcome to the Closet Writer Chronicles. This week, I have with me Pratyush Parasharaman. Welcome to the show, Pratyush. It is so good to have you here. Thank you, Sangeeta. So, Pratyush, I mean, you have a really interesting sort of career trajectory, which we'll get into. Uh, but the first thing I want to ask you is, what is your earliest memory of being creative? And when did you start writing? It's a little complicated. I'm not able to put chronology to it, but um, it's just impressions uh, that I'll give you, if that's fine. Uh, one of So I've been writing short stories for a very long time. And by a very long time, I mean from the age of eight or nine. And when I say short stories, I don't mean good short stories. I mean words put together in sentences that can be somewhat read. And these short stories invariably came from images that I used to obsess over. And these images could be of, uh, a lot of it was uh, the films that I was watching, like an Im image that would strike me. And then I would weave a different story around that image. A lot of it used to be calendar art. I used to be very taken by the pitchwise of Krishna that I had seen growing up. Um, and those images of the Leela that used to happen. And I had written quite a few stories just riffing off of that. Again, I have to be very clear, these were awful stories because I was revisiting some of them recently and I was like, my God. Uh, 
But the, the, the point was that these were images that I was somewhat trying to transcribe almost through these stories. And so they were very descriptive. There was not much events happening. It was just a lot of static images, which in my head were, they were sort of staining my consciousness in, a, in some sense, because I was not able to sort of get rid of it. And I remember, of course, when you're a child, you're very excited and you think you're the best writer and the best poet and the best painter. And so I was making everyone read these stories. <laughs> and my uncle, I remember at that time, who had read it and he said, uh, there will come a time, and I remember this very clearly, that there will come a time when you will not be excited about words as much as you are about story. In the sense that I used to love certain words and I used to use them. And I used okay. to just be excited by being able to use those words in a sentence, right? Like oblivion, for example, <laughs> using it in a sentence to give me a high. And he had told me that um, there will come a time when you'll be excited by the story you're writing and not the words you're using to to express that story. And I that 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 was a very formative um, criticism almost that I have held on to for a very long time. But the cut and thrust of it is, was just that I was obsessed with images. I was very, um, I used to be moved by color a lot. I remember when we used to travel uh, in Tamil Nadu near Madurai, the houses used to be very, very colorful. Like they would yeah. paint the houses in these garish hues of um, the copper sulfate blue, uh, you know, rose syrup pink. Um, there used to be this like dusty yellow uh pista green and when we used to so i had just inherited my father's camera at that time an slr and you know where you can change the uh the shutter speed and so when the yeah. car was moving i was able to actually take static photos of these houses and I, I sort of came back home and sort of collected all of these and put them into a into a folder and my parents were like what is what is he up to because it makes no sense right just taking photos of facades of houses which were quite generic looking I suppose um, but like I said just the colors in them would move me in a way few things have and that obsession continues to this day where I would like for example this painting I don't know if you can see this one here yeah actually for sunset in Berkeley where I studied um, and I remember the first thing I realized when I moved to Berkeley to study was just the shade of blue in the sky was unlike any shade of blue I had seen. It was like seeing a color for the first time. And I don't know how to just express the sheer absurdity of that moment, right? <laughs> like you didn't think this color could exist, but also it's simultaneously very alienating because it's, this is not sunset for you, right? Sunset is a little dusty, a little cloudy, a little... It, these are not the shades of blue you're used to. And so it was simultaneously full of awe, but also full of alienation. Um, so yeah, so my earliest memories of writing were just trying to transcribe the sensuality and the imagery that I was uh, unintentionally being drawn towards. Mm. Um, and even not just writing, but even thinking about writing, even criticism for that matter, one of my formative moments of criticism, and I'm saying formative, of course, in hindsight, when I was trying to think about like an origin story for like, how did <laughs> I begin to think about criticism, was that in 2007, this film called Savaria came out. Yeah, oh um, yeah. 
and we were a family that used to go for all of these movies very regularly but for some reason that weekend we didn't go for either Savarya or Om Shanti Om which released uh, alongside it and the next day after Diwali when school opened my bus buddy had watched Savarya and okay. he had absolutely detested it <laughs> okay and instead of asking him why he hated it i told him to narrate the whole film to me Hmm. And okay. so in our it used to be a forty-five minute bus trip back, and then forty-five minutes back home in the evening. So it used to be in one hour normally when on the way back, during which he narrated the whole film to me, okay, scene by scene, and or as much as he remembered. And for him, he sort of gave it a very magic realist touch. Like hmm. if you've seen the film, there is this character played by Zora Segal called uh, Lillian. Yeah, I love Sabarya. I just shamelessly say it. I really like the film when it came out. It's it's a film that I will defend to death. Yeah, <laughs> I would <And> too. <laughs> just the two of us, not even Pansali, would defend this film. I really liked it when it came out, and everyone was like, "I'm sorry, I enjoyed the film. I'm not even going to deny it." What was it about the film that moved you, though? I don't know. I think there was just so. I think first of all, it was so different from everything commercial that was coming out. In all honesty, and it was so visually stunning. First of all, and I think just to see, I don't know. It just worked, and I think the fact that it was kind of like a love story at the core of it, but it was about unrequited love. And I love Zora Segal. I think she's amazing as an artist. Honestly, so just to see her on screen was just amazing. But yeah, I don't know. There were just so many things that just worked for me, and it just. touched me in a way that i was like oh my god i love this and like i could watch this again and still be like oh my god this is great but yeah and i still go back to that film sorry people uh, sorry haters but yeah i do <laughs> if you love zora segal you should have i don't know if you've read the biography by ritu menon i haven't I... i've been wanting to oh my god that woman has lived such a fascinating life i mean my traveling at that young age around being with Uday Shankar and just you know in Dresden and I think she's a role model honestly speaking Julie I mean even interviews the way she would talk about having yeah. sex in her 90s yeah <laughs> I was like this lady but we digress coming back <laughs> so the I mean the the thing about that narration was so lillian essentially is this like in the her character lillian g was this really grumpy woman and she says and when rani mukherjee is introducing her she's like if she likes you she'll give you a room to stay uh, and if she doesn't like you she'll make you chicken tandoori like as in like she tell you to go and my friend sort of interpreted it as a literal thing that she will transform you into a chicken tandoori <laughs> and so when his in his narration she was a sort of old crooked magician who is So, so the film was playing very differently in my head, and I loved it. I loved the narration yeah. so much. I was trying to figure out why someone would not like this movie. Yeah. And then, of course, I watched it with that frame in mind, right? And I think when you're young, you are more moved by convictions than by, uh, than by just the objective. Well, objective is not the right word, but just like I would not be able to watch anything. with a blank slate i walk in with a very strong conviction and that conviction stays if i have mm. to like a film i will like that film like there's okay. no way and nothing about it that can make me not like that film mm. it's this kind of arrogance of youth i suppose i don't know what it is but uh 
there was this very strong conviction in me when I walked into Savaria. So I, I knew I was going to love the film. And of course I did. And my first, I suppose, act of criticism was trying to defend that movie hmm. in every social situation. So I was And the music those... was great, let me just add. Yeah, music. My God, that cassette used to play nonstop. The Rasbina Nahi Chen and Sabar Gai. And my mom used to love the song... Um, Thode Badmash that oh, Ansali composed. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I suppose that was my first act of just trying to figure out if if you want to think about criticism as a way of defending the films that you love and others don't, then this was a seminal moment because I was bringing it up constantly in conversations when it was like they would be talking about AI and politics and I would suddenly <laughs> just bring in Savaria yeah. and, <laughs> and, and, and defend the film. Um, I don't know if the defense was very effective. I don't think it was, but it just in the act of wanting to stand by a film uh, when no one else was willing to, um, it sort of made me also feel very interesting you know, when in that age you love being outside Different. of the crowd. Yeah. yeah. You're like, you know, when people are like, oh, I'm weird. And they're saying it with some sense of pride. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was going through that phase also simultaneously. So there was also a bit of pride in this opinion that I was having. Um, so I was not, I'm not able to dislodge one from the other. I don't, mm. so I still don't know if, it, if, if I were to watch it with a blank slate, I know that's not possible, but if I were to in a hypothetical world, I don't know if I would like it or not. But I think all of these came together at a time uh, to sort of cement this idea of, of beauty in my head. And I suppose that that was why I began writing. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Also, can I just say, when you talk, it's like poetry. I'm like, please just keep talking. <laughs> you just have such a way with words, honestly. Um, but you know, there was so much I resonated with what you were saying. I mean, A, of course, Savarya. But just the fact that, you know, when you said that sometimes you just you just know that you're going to like something, you know, like a film or a book. And I know I've faced instances about that um, because I know films that I knew I was going to love even before going to watch them, and I have. One was, you know, funnily, coincidentally, Savarya. Another one was Bangalore Days. And then most recently was Sita Ramam for me. Like, Ooh. I just... I just knew Sita. I was going to, I love that movie. I'm sorry. I will, I will defend that film also to like another level. But yeah, I mean, I just knew I was going to love it. So I completely resonated with what you were saying there. Uh, but, you know, having said that, who are some of your favorite like artists and, you know, creators? Because I believe like, you know, everyone, especially I think when you're a writer, there invariably are people who kind of do influence and impact you right in your on your creative journey or writing journey so to speak so who are they for you and I guess what were pieces of work that really like moved you or have inspired you so I've always struggled with this question because I, I don't consider influence to be so clear uh, hmm. or linear for that matter right like you read something you're influenced by it and it moves you and then you change your writing like it's never been like that but I can tell you examples of me uh, trying to consciously plagiarize other writers' styles okay. <laughs> to arrive at my own. Because I think that's the closest to influence. One was, of course, uh, Julian Barnes, The Sense of an Ending. It's mm. this uh, lovely novel of friends. It's a very short novel uh, of friends who just 
grew apart through time and it's about of course the tragedy of time and how when you are old and you look back on your life your life can seem so different from actually what it was in a sense how memory taints uh, the moment and a lot of the book is about how they were young and uh, they would say stuff like that's so philosophically self-evident and I loved that phrase and I started using it completely <laughs> intentionally I would like force fit it into conversations and my schoolmates would be like what are you smoking <laughs> <laughs> things like even my college essay for example so the book starts sense of an ending starts with a list of memories just a random list of memories that this man has about his life and I love that and then through the novel all of these memories come together in a narrative and I use that format for my college essays uh one of the memories being me peeing on my brother when I was really young you know <laughs> like it's so taking being so I don't know if I was moved by the the book as much as I was in awe of the style of writing hmm uh, in the same vein, like Rushdie, Salman Rushdie's book in, in Midnight's Children, there's a word, a phrase called rainbow riot. Hmm. And, or he would describe the moon as creamy, hmm. you know? Uh, and so these adjectives, these adverbs, I would sort of pick them up and sort of lodge them in my brain somewhere. And I would use them in my writings. So that, I suppose, is the most direct incarnation of the word influence. But there have been writers whom I've always wanted to, uh, writers whom I've always wanted to become some version okay. of. One of them was Anita Desai. Okay. Uh, because, so what happened, I used to never read very much as a, as a kid growing up. Uh, I used to be more, like I used to be out, out and about. Um, but then I shifted schools and it was from a little more posher school to a little more middle class school. And I was very snooty about the whole thing and decided that I didn't need friends. So I retreated almost. Uh, and one of the things that held me in good stead at that time was my English teacher in the eighth grade. Okay. Uh, Ms. Anjani, and she pushed me towards books. Okay. She uh, told, and I, like, you know, it's like, she's like, read. And I was like, what do I read? Like, I had no conception of reading. I, know I had read, what, Harry Potter and Roald Dahl. I mean, the, the, the most clear memory of reading was my mom used to come pick us up from school. And I was reading all of Roald Dahl at that time. This was like when I was really young. And I would sit on, in the back seat on the floor and I would lounge against the door and I would just be reading. And it was, I was, it, I grew up in Dubai. And so like the, there was that harsh Dubai sunlight trickling and it was the afternoon, right? And I would just be reading Roald Dahl for that, those 45 minutes every, every afternoon. But that, I mean, I didn't read because I loved, it was just something that happened um, that I never took reading seriously I moved schools. And she was like, you should read. And I was like, what do I read? I don't know anything. And she suggested Chitra Banerjee. Okay. Uh, and so I went to the local library that we had in Dubai and I said, give me Chitra Banerjee. And they were like, who? And I was like, I don't know Chitra Banerjee. And they were like, we don't, we only have Anita Desai. And so I went and they had this whole rack of just Anita Desai and I picked up In Custody. That was the first book I picked up. And um, 
I was so moved by the silence and the 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 the, the pace of a language. It suddenly stilled life, right? Mm. Suddenly you were like you're you're running in a certain with certain motions, and then you enter her book, and then it's like a sigh almost, right? You just okay. Um, her descriptions used to tire me sometimes and bore me sometimes, but. Uh, I remember reading fasting, feasting, and was just bored over sometimes. Like I would be reading a page, and I would just be bored, and then suddenly there would be a description, and I'd be like, "Jesus, this is." Um, it it just like struck you on the head almost. And so after that, of course, what you do is then you go on YouTube, and then you read all, you watch all the videos, you read everything that's written about her. Yeah. And I remember telling my mother she was an old, she's an old woman and so she she speaks very conscientiously. Every word that comes out of her mouth is calculated beauty is how I would put it. Like it's calculated, but it doesn't sound uh, rehearsed. There's something so mm. beautiful that comes out of it at the same time. Uh, and I remember telling my mother back then that this is I want to be this. Uh, so she was. I don't know if it was an influence as much as an ideal that I had in my yeah. head. And, make that dif- that distinction um between the two because she certainly was one of them uh parul sagal is to this day one of the influences that i have she's a literary critic she used to write for the new york times and now she writes for the new yorker uh and she taught me something which i will always hold very close to my heart which is the most important thing for a writer to be is charming interesting it's uh, like let me hold your hand and walk you through this piece that i have written you know oh. that that kind of um let, sit beside me while i explain why i like this film why i didn't like this film um and very recently i think uh jerry pinto has been on my mind because i finished reading the education of yuri and i've this is something i've been struggling for a long time which is that how do you dislike something without being ironic about it or sarcastic about it like what is the language like when you don't like a film mm. right the criticism or the critics or just generally the language that we use is often of sarcasm and irony right oh that salman khan film and you know like <laughs> you know like the, the critics are just having fun belting out these you know really um, pointed uh, ironic statements and it's just it's very fun to read but fundamentally i'm thinking about like how do you and in pinto's book uh education of yuri there's a line which is like is it is it easier to be clever than to be sincere mm. and uh yeah i've i've been struggling with that a bit because it's like what is the language we used in conversations in life to describe something we don't like Mm. Can, can we grapple with it as something sincerely or do we have to do we have, what is this urge for irony that we have yeah <laughs> you know um, yeah i suppose so these are just broadly people who've pushed me in directions that i i, I wouldn't have otherwise thought of uh, if it weren't for them i suppose yeah no that's that's great and i think you left us a lot to think about especially with that part about um jerry pinto and i think you know the fact that yeah it is is it easier to be clever than sincere you know that's it's funny because that's actually something even i've been thinking about a lot in recent times um so yeah it's definitely something worth mulling over um but yeah i think sort of moving more into 
your sort of career trajectory. So you studied economics at Berkeley um, and you had an interest in policy, which you did go on to work um, at J-PAL. So how did you decide to get into that space? And, you know, what was, I guess, that phase of your career like for you? In the ninth standard, we were introduced to economics. Um, and this is CBSE. So this is a very bare bones economics. It's barely economics, actually, if you look at it. Um, but I remember the first week of learning this new subject. It's a new subject, right? And there's some excitement. Uh, I remember coming back thinking, I want to do a PhD in this and teach. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Um, and I mean, I've come from a family where, you know, teaching is given a kind of priority that few professions are given, hmm. uh, given a priority and importance of respect that few professions are given. And so it just made sense for me um, to want to go in that direction. And so economics seemed to be exactly what it is. And that love for economics remained uh, through 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th. Um, and then, of course, in college, it just made natural sense that I would study economics. Uh, within the first year, I realized that I don't want just to do economics because it was sort of, it dulls when you hang out with the same kind of people, the same ideas, keep regurgitating. And so I did a double degree in Urdu with South Asian mm. studies with an Urdu emphasis because I just wanted to see if I could just push myself in two directions and, um, you know, be okay with it in a certain sense. Uh, but even within economics, of course, you have to specialize and you have to realize what is it in economics that you like. And in the third year, we did this course on development economics where by, taught by Edward Miguel and he and his mentor had did this experiment in uh, Africa on deworming kids. Okay. It was a randomized control trial and they dewormed the treatment group and they compared how the two were doing. Uh, they realized that it was a very powerful intervention because the people, the children who were dewormed were studying more. They were studying better. Okay. And it was a, a sensational result in a time where people were trying to figure out how to keep people in school, how to keep children in school. Hmm. And the Africa government picked it up and they eventually dewormed 5 million kids based okay. on this research. Okay. India took it up and then India dewormed the kids. So this was one of the few examples of uh, an economic research project which has policy implications uh, to a point where they also got additional funding to study how are these kids doing when they enter the job force. And they found out that kids who are dewormed end up earning more, doing better jobs, greater skills. And so I remember very clearly weeping in class, thinking about here is the economics that I think I want to do, mm. right? Because okay. we are, of course, of course, I was like 18 or 19 or whatever, and you have this ghost in your head saying that you're going to change the world, and you're trying to find the most efficient way to do that. And you're realizing that maybe I struck gold. Like, this is <laughs> it. Uh, and so I continued. I did a few more courses in development economics. And um, I knew I was going to do a PhD in that, in that specific field. Okay. Uh, 
I was going to apply for a PhD directly out of my undergrad. And then my advisor at that time, Supreet Kaur, she told me, why don't you just do field work for two years or a year or two to just see how these experiments that you're writing about is takes place. Yeah. And I like that idea. And so I applied to JPAL, a few projects, uh, which was working across South Asia, Southeast Asia. They have a huge portion of experiments, all random, mostly randomized controlled trials all in development economics, cutting-edge research, working with some of the finest professors across the globe. And I got to work with Professor Sean Cole, who was working, he's at Harvard Business School, and he was working with farmers in rural Gujarat at that time, uh, trying to do an experiment with uh, an agricultural information system, saying that if we give you more timely information to farmers uh, about their crops and the pests, what does it do to the yields? What does it do to the amount of the bargaining power that they have in markets and mondays? What does it do to their lifestyle? What does it do to the education of the kids? So this was the experiment that we're doing and we got funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for this. Uh, and the early results of the experiment were very positive. And so the Odisha government decided to take up and do another large scale thing. Okay. So I was sort of shuffling between uh, rural Gujarat and rural Odisha for a year and a half and we were doing this big experiment um, but then what happened was slowly I was not excited by data by the data that we were collecting so I was training the surveyors and we were going to the fields and conducting these interviews and then I was seeing how these interviews were being uh, like data was coming out of it and then it was being analyzed and then it was being presented in these conferences and so I was seeing that whole uh, sort of life cycle of data I was losing interest in data okay. because I was realizing that in these we'd have these hour-long interviews with these farmers hour-long hour and a half sometimes and I would see the farmer not exactly engaging with us because we were looking for very specific quite kind of answers and they were sort of throwing numbers at us essentially um, and, and that's always a limitation of data and we knew this walking into the field that you know you're not going to get exact answers and exact numbers that's just not how people think generally right like if i ask you how much did you spend yesterday exactly <laughs> you're not going to give me uh an answer that is sort of going to satisfy my, my my research hypotheses in a certain sense but just doing this day in day out was i was just sort of losing my excitement with data number one and of course i was in rural gujarat for three months and I was sort of living on, on in a hotel on the highway and it was just very lonely also at that time okay uh you know I'd get up in the morning and I would just have my sickly sweet tea <laughs> oha in which also they put sugar and just you know staring at the, the cars go by and sometimes a bus would come with passengers and sit in the dhaba and it was it was a very incredibly lonely time so I think all of these simultaneously these things were happening and I decided I have to I, I can't um, do a PhD in this because I think to have to do a PhD in something you have to have an absolute conviction in, yeah. in that field, right um, have you thought of doing a PhD at any time is that yeah kind of but uh, we will not get into that right now <laughs> <laughs> because it's just like when I talk to people who've wanted to do PhDs and didn't end up doing it. it's the same story that comes out right like you're just so excited by an idea and then you realize maybe I'm not excited enough to pursue yeah. a PhD. <laughs> PhD is, it's 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 a it's a kind of labor that is unimaginable for someone who hasn't yeah. done it 
Uh, and so the next best thing I thought I could do was write. Uh, and so I decided to put my papers in and I said the last month of my work, I'd do it remotely from Mumbai because I it's just analysis analysis work and cleaning data, which I could do remotely anyways. And also if I'm like Mumbai, I came to Mumbai because my grandmother lives here, my uncle and aunt live here, so I could live with them. Okay. Uh, I won't have to sort of sell my kidney to pay rent. <laughs> uh, and also Mumbai is sort of the central for writing and writers. And I thought something will happen, right? Like, let me just come here and figure it out as I as I uh, move through the city. So yeah, I came here. It was April 2019. Uh, April 2019, I think it was. Yeah, I came right before the election so I could vote. Uh, and... Yeah, I th- then I just sort of moved around and I realized that a lot of uh, writing is just finding and building networks. Mm, okay. Uh, and my first two jobs. So what was, I don't know, should I, I, I don't know if I'm digressing too much because. Uh, no, but I, no, I think, no, no, but I think we are going in a really good flow because what I did want to ask you next is you did make the switch to sort of you know, going into a more writing, a writer zone professionally and kind of then diving into film journalism and culture writing. So I am definitely curious to know how that transition happened for you, because how do you go from economics and public policy to like something that is so different, you know, from what you originally started with? Well, being reckless, I think that's the <laughs> short end, uh, short answer. Again, the thing about the story is that it's, we often look at people's life stories and think they're somewhat replicable, but I mm. think the circumstances that, and the matrices, the just the unique things that happened with it's, I don't think it will happen again. So I don't want anyone to sort of listen to this and think it's, this can happen to them. Yeah. Uh, it might. But I, I, I think what these stories generally tend, because I'm saying this because I used to think like that too, right? Because when I was in Ahmedabad, uh, thinking about moving to writing, I was, talking to all of these writers and they'd have these bizarre stories of how they walked into writing and thinking this might happen to me. Uh, <laughs> of course it didn't, but um, that's, that's just a disclaimer of sorts. But I had at that time, I was uh, sort of emotionally grappling with this person and it was the time when Kalank had released the film. Okay. And so we were having this really long conversation about that film on chat and you know it's like when you're emotionally invested in a person you just you know you give your like 100 word messages 200 word messages 300 yeah. word messages and so that was what was happening so there was just like really long messages being sent back and forth about that film that film reminded me a lot of uh, I thought like I didn't like that film very much and I was sort of using why I liked Savaria so much to talk about why I didn't like this, like what worked in Savaria that, and he was trying to do the same things here, which didn't work in a certain sense. And um, it was why I think I'm talking about the emotional investment is that it made me just want to write to him about the film. So mm. it wasn't the film that made me want to write. It was it was him that made me want to write about the film. Um, and the, around the same time, Film Companion had started the first, uh, it was some contest, I suppose, where they just said, like, send your reviews and the best review will go on the website. It was the first edition they were doing and Kalank was the first film. And I was like, I have already written a 1,500 word thesis on this, <laughs> on the chat. So 
I just collected all of it and I put it into one document. I edited it lightly and I sent it and I forgot about it. Okay. And then when I was at a friend's place in Ahmedabad, um, not very sober, <laughs> I was sort of scrolling through Twitter uh, and suddenly Bharadwaj Rangan, the critic, had put out, like he tweeted about that review. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize it won. I didn't realize that he liked the review and he sort of tweeted about it. And I was like, should I, should I message him for a job? <laughs> because that was around this time that I just put in my papers. And, and um, the friend was like, don't, don't be desperate about it. Like, make, give it a day or two. And I was like, I am desperate. I don't mind him knowing I'm desperate. It's not like, what am I going to do holding on to my self-respect? I need a job. <laughs> um, and so I immediately messaged him and he, you know, Barry is just one of the kindest souls. And so he immediately put me in touch with Mohini, who was the associate editor from Companion at that time. I emailed her with samples. Uh, and when I moved to Bombay, I sort of met her and uh, she thought it was a good fit. And so I started working three days a week. And it was three days a week because I had also got another gig simultaneously with Parmeshani. Okay. Uh, the, just the sort of I call him the gay Gatsby of <laughs> Bombay. He's just the most stunning human being that you will ever come across. Uh, he was working on his book Queeristan at that time, and he wanted a researcher. Mm. Now I didn't know very much about him, but I was the kind of person I was. Anyone who I met on the streets, in friends and parties, I was like, I'm going to Bombay. Do you know anyone who wants a writer? And I was one of those people. Okay. So a friend of a friend. Uh, was like, she came across Parmesh's post saying that he's looking for a researcher and he, she tagged me in it. Okay. On that post. And I was like, great. So I just sent in my email, forgot about it. And then I moved to Bombay and of course he, we, we did an interview and he thought it was a good fit. And so I started working on that three days a week. So that was my first job. And then simultaneously wow. the film companion thing happened. And so I was like, I already have this three days a week. Do you mind if I do film companion three days a week? And they were like, not at all. Uh, so sort of I was doing the three days a week, three days a week thing. And that's just how I moved into writing. In between, I was thinking of doing like radio writing. I had Ooh, spoken to some okay. radio. Yeah, yeah. I was I was doing, I was just sort of throwing everything at the wall. I remember at that time, Jet Airways had just, um, had just uh, shut down. And so a lot of people were laid off. And so yeah. some so, so Jet Airways just laid off a bunch of people. And so this editor had put out a tweet saying that if you're from Jet Airways, uh, you can reach out to me. And I was like, I'm not from Jet Airways. Can I still reach out? You know, so I was throwing everything at the wall because I had no network and I knew no one in the city. Um, and even my uncle and aunt were like really helpful and they were putting me in touch with like writers and screenwriters. And I, at that time, I didn't know if I wanted to get into screenwriting specifically. Mm. And these two things just happened simultaneously, organically. And I was very excited about all of them. Because Film Companion, of course, I've been watching for a long time since it came out. In 2015, it started, I think. Uh, and Parmesh was just, I think the, the moment I met him, um, it was, I was just electrified by his personality, you know. Uh, he nice. walked in with a boat. He, he, works, he worked at Godridge at that time. And so he walked in... Um, into his sort of he started the sculpture lab in Godrej, which is just sort of this incubator of some of the finest work um 
and events that was happening. He was trying to make sort of Vikroli, put Vikroli on the cultural map in a certain sense. And he walked in with his bow tie. And so I walked into Godrej office. So I, at that time, I was going through my shawl phase. So I would, stole phase. So I would wear okay. stole. Uh, and I remember, I think I wore, um, it was this uh, electric blue Leheria print stole. And I walked into Big Holly, uh, and I removed it as I walked into Godrej because it felt odd. Because you know, everyone is walking around with their ties and their yeah. formals and the click click of the boots. I was in my choppers, in my denims. Uh, and I was like, I'm already standing out. Like, how much more do I want to stand out? And so I removed it and I put it into my bag. And then I sat sit down and I wait for him. And he walks in with his bow tie, uh, his pink bow tie, <laughs> but he could spot a mile. And I thought, my God, this is this. It requires a a very different level of not just confidence but irreverence to not worry too much about what other people think. Um, so I, these were two jobs that, you know, simultaneously, but but also was very, very excited by. And I learned everything about writing through these jobs because I was not formally trained as a writer, of course. I never moved in that direction. Most of the writing that I did even in college was academic. Uh, so a lot of the writing here was unlearning that academic style of writing. Um, yeah, so I suppose that's just how I made my entry into writing yeah, which is amazing. And I, I know, obviously, everyone has their own journey with this. And it's very, it, it is independent of a lot of things. And it's difficult to compare. But I think it is just kind of sort of inspiring in some ways to hear about these journeys and be like, hey, you know, it's great that this happened for someone. Yeah, of course, it leaves you with the hope sometimes that maybe it could happen to me. But I think it's also the sort of courage and conviction with which you sort of went after it, right? Like you said, you were sort of just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. And it did stick. That's the best part. You took that chance. And more power to you for that. Um, but, you know, since you made the switch, I'm curious, like, did people have anything to say when you were switching from like economics and policy and research work to like sort of a more culture writing, film journalism space? Like, I don't know, did family and friends say anything? at all or was it just complete support throughout always been very supportive uh the only thing they wanted me to be was sure of what i wanted to do Hmm. even my uncle for that matter like sometimes um i remember we had this long conversation because i moved it was a radical shift and he was like and my uncle is someone who worked in a company from when he was like in his early 20s and he stayed with his company and he might be retiring soon and he is now you know at the top of that company so he's sort of he's off that culture and the generation which sort of you stay with one job you stay with one yeah. portfolio and you move through it yeah um, and so he was like you're making the shift to writing are you, are you sure I was like I'm sure for now I can't I can't predict what I'm going to feel 10 years from now 10 years from now I want to move back to economics and then that freaked him out my uncle out he was like need to be sure about what you're doing which is you know quite fair um so the the thing always was if i was sure of what i was doing there was no anxiety in their voice and their ideas because they're like something will work out eventually something will work out it was only when i was unsure of what i wanted when i was expressing or articulating either despair either some sort of um instability 
that was when I think they were a little uh, they were a little unsure because also I mean I have to mention this that this it, I come from a family of immense privilege you know like I like my father always was like we can like you don't have to worry too much about money at least for the first few years like we can be there for you if you want and of course I had a house in Bombay that I could move into without being rent, without sort of killing myself. Though I did have savings when I shifted my job. I was very clear that even when I was in Japan, I was like, I have to make a certain amount of money and then leave so that I have this buffer uh, that I have. But there was just this immense privilege that was a cushion almost, an emotional cushion. Uh, it wasn't just monetary. Of course, it was monetary. Uh, but it was just this emotional cushion that I had that I didn't have to worry about how to make next month's rent, how to think about those things so I think all of that also uh, helped immensely but they never their uh, excitement or their anxiety was very much linked to my excitement and my anxieties which mm. uh, is I suppose a healthy way of, of, of being yeah yeah no that's amazing because you know for better or worse unfortunately a lot of people don't get that kind of support right so and I think having that support makes a huge difference right to anyone it's like one less battle to fight because you're already kind of dealing with so much um so you know I think it's it's incredible that you did have that kind of support and sort of that system around you uh in a way but you know now that you are um, sort of writing and you're doing this full time do you face any kind of like misconceptions or assumptions about your day job which are just absurd and you're like no this is not true i think one is that we hang out with stars all the time like really stars. it's something that i get often they're like oh you must have met sharok you must have met salman and i was like you don't know how low in the hierarchy we are <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, I think that is one misconception people have that we just, you know, and of course one, the other one is the money. And I have to mention this that there's not very much, there's not much money in writing. Um, not just that it's not much money, but when you start, you're, you're a green writer, you don't even have the confidence to ask for money because you don't know what your worth is, you don't know what the market rate is, you don't know what what publications are willing to pay, not willing to pay. Yeah. You're just so excited by just. The, being given the platform to write um i suppose at that time but yeah so one of the thing this they think that there's a lot of money in it which is not the case and they think that and of course i think with critics and criticism there's this unsaid uh assumption that a lot of paid critics you're paid by publication houses you're given gifts and this and that which of course isn't in our case in film companions case at least i can say it's not true um, but I, of course, know of critics who do get paid. I know of critics who, for some films, have to, you know, tone down their 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 objectives. Um, mm. but yeah, these are some of the misconceptions I suppose that people have about writing. You know, uh, one of the other things I did want to ask you is that, and I've read like a couple of pieces, and I've I think I've personally sort of messaged you about them as well, and said that hey, you know, I really you know, love the way you've written certain pieces. And uh, I truly do, like, each time I feel like I read a piece written by you, I feel like I just come out feeling a little smarter. <laughs> and, I feel, and I feel like, oh my God, these past, like, how many ever minutes was so worthwhile <laughs> of, you know, just spending it on this piece of, you know, writing or content or whatever. Um, but, you know, something fascinating is that you have a very distinctive style of writing. And the reason I say distinctive is I feel like, 
at least the more I've you're one of those writers I feel like you have a certain way of sort of presenting um information or pieces and opinions where you could be you know talking about like for example if I had to look back even at a paper you had done at Berkeley uh, on homosexuality and you're talking about law and history and culture and suddenly there's a mention of like guzzles and how it's that's becoming so like binary and they're trying to like genderize that so it's really fascinating how you manage to kind of weave so many different elements and at no point does it ever feel overwhelming or like info dumping and yet it's driving home a point and I feel like that's a very you style that's a very Pratyush Parushraman style of writing as I'd like to call it because I don't see very many writers who are able to do that and do it with such a strong voice with such strong conviction so how do you kind of develop your own you know that kind of voice of writing because I mean I'm sure I mean I don't know if it comes overnight but I'm sure there is a process so how is it for you? I, I mean, the two separate things, and one is about voice and one is about the content that the voice is, in some sense, um, f- being foundational to. With voice, it's I've learned this over time, it's not something that you can wander consciously towards. Hmm. It's something that you unconsciously arrive at, if that makes sense. You, okay. I cannot force fit a voice and work towards it, you know? Uh, Because the thing about a voice is that it has to seem natural. The the thing about a a voice is it's it's something that unconsciously emerges from all the reading that you do, Mm. which is why I think one of the most important things for a critic, even a film critic to do, is to read. People think that a film critic needs to watch a lot of movies, which is true. But one thing that they don't think about is that a film critic needs to read. Uh, Because reading provides you that avenue to unconsciously absorb certain styles, active versus passive. What kind of line do you want to start with? How much of the first person do you want to use? Um, Do you want to use M dashes? Do you want to use semicolons? what are how many adjectives do you use you know one of my favorite art critics jerry Saul, sometimes his whole paragraph is just a collection of adjectives okay right and it's just like and what that does is it doesn't it's not about describing uh, a, a work of art as much as just you're seeing this critic grapple with something this painting and he's just flinging words at it, trying to, in some sense, approximate that sensual interaction that he's had with that work of art, which is fundamental. You're not able to translate, right? It's a visceral experience that you're trying to put into words. It's just impossible. And what he's trying to do with that paragraph of adjectives is just give us a sense of him grappling with that impossibility. Now, these are things that you pick up by only by reading, I suppose. Uh, so that is voice and I don't know if I can be more helpful because it's just something that is I've changed also over time right if I read some of the stuff that I used to write in 2019 I want to bury myself into a hole and hibernate forever because it's just uh, so uh, not just untrained but there's something so unfinished about it Hmm. like there are thoughts that I've I feel like one more sentence I could have written about. 
Mm. In my head, it was a complete idea. But on paper, two years later reading it, it feels incomplete. Uh, even a small thing, like I was not able to make the distinction between an M dash and an M dash. Yeah. You know, I was not making the distinction in my writing in 2019. So when I go back to those pieces, I just, there's like a visceral cringe that happens because, and, and of course, punctuation is very much part of a voice as a writer, at least. So that is just something that you arrive at. Uh, and the way you arrive at it is by absorbing as much reading as you can. Um, good reading. I think Arundhati Roy said this really well, that uh, when you're a writer, you're not just reading anymore, you're reading conscientiously, yeah. right? Because you start, start like picking up style, you're picking up words like, you know, Rainbow Ride and Creamy Moon and Philosophically Self-Evident and all of that. Uh, you're picking up these things, you're picking up styles, you're picking up... Uh, like... For example, like, would you write in first person or not? Is something that I still grapple with because I feel uncomfortable with the first person. I feel okay. that it, um, I feel that it lends itself to the personal essay form, which I've always been very, very of for a long time. So you know things like that. I think you you learn over time. You arrive at, but when it comes to what your what is in it, like the the references, the sort of the raw material from which you're sort of sculpting the piece, it's, again, all about reading conscientiously, taking notes, having a system where you're able to go back to these things and refer to it. But then, okay, how do you sort of um, review books versus film? Because I know you do both. Um, is that process different for you or are they actually very much the same? So book reviewing happened uh during the pandemic what was happening was i moved back to my parents place in madurai near madurai and i had nothing to do because i knew no one there and you couldn't go out so what i would shift my work day so i would start working at like 6 37 in the morning and i'd finish by like 2 33 and so i'd have the rest of the day free and so i would just read books so to, it came to a point where i would read like a book every two days and there was always amazon parcels coming home uh, and a lot of money was being spent. And I thought I was trying to be smart. And I said, what if I get paid to write? And so that payment about books and so that payment would sort of, uh, I would be able to write books that I want to read about. I would read anyways. Uh, and I wouldn't have to pay for those books because I would get press copies or whatever. Uh, a terrible decision in hindsight, because the problem is that when you begin to uh, labor, in what you leisure, generally, it changes your relationship to, to leisure in a way that oh. cannot be undone, mm. right? If you take something that you love and you make it work and you attach money to it, then, you know, it ruins something. Uh, not everything. I mean, the joy of reading still exists, but it, it certainly did something to uh, my relationship to literature. Uh, I mean, the, the reviewing process of books and movies is very different in the sense that with a book, you can stay with a sentence. So the movie is sort of, it's just, whizzing past you and so you almost there's an insecurity while watching a movie of like you not being able to hold on to details mm. with books that's not the case right because you can underline it you can make notes about it you can go over it again and again um of course it's streaming movies that was not the case but generally with film criticism you walk into a theater it's dark people take notes in the theater i i want to be the kind of person who takes notes but i just i'm not able to just that's just not me 
what I usually just do is um, on my phone take note of the names of the characters because I tend to forget mm. that okay. very often. That's something I'm very not very good at. Um, but I think fundamentally they're just such different uh, genres that the, you walk in with different insecurities, you walk in with different expectations and excitements, right? With a book versus a film, the time also that you're investing. You're watching a film in an hour and a half. A book sometimes takes you. Like I was reviewing Hanya Yani Gahara's book to Paradise, and I was like, an 800-page book. It took me a week to get through that. So mm. your engagement with the work is also that much longer. Yeah. And because your engagement with the work is longer, you're, you're thinking about it constantly, right? You're in the shower and you're thinking about it. You're eating food and you're thinking about it. You're going to sleep and you're thinking about it. Um, and so there, it's right, book reviews is a little more more consuming than, than film reviews mm. in that sense. But then when it comes to writing, I think it's it's just the fundamental act of criticism, which is just trying to express what you felt uh, mm. and trying as little as possible to reverse engineer your feelings. Okay. Because what happens is a lot of times you're, you get more clarity on what you thought while writing. And this mm. is something people don't realize. Yeah. That with criticism, that they think that we have an idea in our head that, okay, this is it. And then you sort of just like sitting and writing it. But it's through the act of writing that very often ideas emerge. And then you are stuck with it because you're like, what do I do with this? Right? Mm. Because this is an idea that emerged from me while writing it. It might not necessarily have been a thought that I had while watching it or while reading mm. it. Mm. And then suddenly you're grappling with this idea of what do you bring to criticism? Do you bring that immediacy of feeling when you're reading and watching it? Is that what the criticism should be about? Or should it just be broader about how you... Uh, sort of struggle with and think about a book over a period of time. And I'll give you a very good example, Liger, the film that came out last this year. Uh, awful film. And I haven't watched I, it. It was it's it's quite trashy. <laughs> and I was <laughs> That's why I didn't watch it. <laughs> it it's a very in it, as a viewing experience, it's just a little fascinating that because I was in the theater and I was just laughing through it. Like laughing at the film for the most part, but just laughing through it. <laughs> And then I came out of the theater and then I was on the train home and I was sort of writing some of the paragraphs that I wanted, that I had in my head. And then I was also simultaneously listening to the director, Puri Jagannath's podcast. So he had this podcast, inspirational podcast. I don't know if you can see my eyes roll, but they're very much rolling. <laughs> uh, and in it, one of the, is about women and what he thinks women should be and, you know, whatever. Okay. And I was so infuriated by that. And what happened was that fury of listening to that podcast was sort of imposed onto my experience of the film. Okay. I might I wasn't necessarily angry at the film, but while writing about the film, that anger sort of just coalesced. And then I don't then I was of course struggling with it. It's like I, I don't like is should should anger be the there in, in the, the tone? But I did feel anger at some point, not in the theater, but I felt towards the film. Because I was seeing so much of what he was talking about women in the female character and how he treats them. Hmm. Uh, and th that's patronizing, idolizing, almost indifference to, to the, f the feminine presence in the film. You know, like if a woman is strong, that's all she is. She's just screaming and ranting and raving. If a woman is coy, that's all she is. Um, 
so yeah, I mean that you, you're constantly struggling with that in any form of criticism, lit- literary or film. Um, but broadly, I don't, I don't think I'd, the writing isn't different. Uh, it's just the grappling with the text or the film that's where the difference is. Hmm. No, that's that's interesting because especially since you kind of review these two very different mediums, so I was just curious as to how you kind of I don't go do book about reviews it. anymore. I think I've stopped doing that. Okay, but I mean, you were so that's why I was just wondering. I was like, hmm, how how different or similar is this process for you? Um, but then, having said that, what makes a story good for you? That's a very complicated question. Uh, because it not just because it has many answers, but the answer also changes. Yeah, for on, sure. Yeah. So at this point so right in time, now, what makes a story good for you? To take beauty seriously, to take desire seriously, uh, I think right now is what I've been thinking about a lot because I've this is barrage of films that are taking neither seriously or are okay. fetishizing both to a point where it's... I mean, have you seen Color, the film? Yeah, I did. It's on Netflix. I did. Like, I, it didn't work for me at all. I thought it was doing this thing of almost fetishizing beauty to a point of it not having an effect, you know? The, the point of beauty is, like, to, to be moved by it. If there's beauty and if you're not moved by it, then is it beauty, really? And what is it? The point of beauty is to be moved by it, right? Like, why do we say that word beauty? Like, beauty is not an aesthetic word. It's very much pungent. It's full of feeling. And if you're not feeling that, then is it beauty? Desire, I think, is the same thing. Um, but mostly, I just don't want to be talked down to. I think a lot of, or talked up to. Uh, I don't want films to either think I'm stupid or too smart, you know? Okay. Uh, I think directors tend to have a sense of like who their audience is and they sort of cater to just that. And sometimes I feel like the director thinks I'm just really stupid. <laughs> you okay. know? And sometimes I feel like the director thinks I'm a little too smart and neither <laughs> work for me. Uh, you know, the, the, either, it's not that I, yeah, I suppose that's that's what I think a good story is. To just not talk down to me, talk up to me. Just talk to me, you know? Why is that so <laughs> difficult? I really, I like the way you put that across, actually. I mean, just say what you need to say. Say it the way you think you need to say it. But don't try to patronize or don't try to, like, treat me as if I'm superior. Just just be. <laughs> I think that's the context I'm getting, which is actually so true when you think about it. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, sort of um, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, I know you're really vocal about, um, you know, issues and not just issues, but just generally about, you know, the LGBTQI plus community, be it, you know, with your own experiences or just your observations in general. And it comes across very clearly, you know, in your writing and just a lot of the things you put out. And I did watch uh, that presentation you did on that paper for Berkeley, which is um, Do Homosexuals Cause Earthquakes? Reframing the Queer Disposition, which I enjoyed very much, I have to say. Um, But, you know, my question to you is, what has your relationship been like with uh, gender identity and sexual orientation? And the reason I'm asking this is because I don't think we have enough open conversation about this in general, especially in a South Asian uh, context. And I feel like we're so used to kind of pushing it under the carpet or not talking about it enough that then people are so wary of talking about it and talking about their own truth and authenticity. So, yeah, what has it been like for you? It's 
fairly complicated, and I'm using the word again, but I, I, I what I mean when I say complicated is um, there's this sense that there's a community and that you must belong to it. Um, and I've always shaped at that idea because I have always been innately doubtful of ideas of community. Um, okay. Because what a community does is it provides comfort. And what that comfort lets you do is it provides, it simplifies certain things, which I demand complexity from. For example, uh, around Section 377, which criminalized anal sex, a lot of people were saying that uh, it made homosexuality illegal. Mm. But that was not okay. technically true. Yeah. Right? It was yeah. the act of anal sex that was considered unnatural for which people could be uh, imprisoned. Now, part of me was like, how do we talk about this? Because a lot of people in the rhetoric, they were being swept by the rhetoric of it and they were like, this is makes queer people illegal. Hmm. And my thing was that it is, because if you're looking at what, it was just a fascinating philosophical question, right? The relationship between uh, homosexuality and homosexual sex. Like, what's that relationship? You know, yeah. like, uh, if if you're saying that to be homosexual, it needs to have anal sex, then, of course, it's true that to be homosexual would be illegal. But what is that relationship between the identity and the sexual act? was one question that I was grappling with. But also, what is the uh, incarnation of this law in the real lives of people, right? So in the paper, I was studying it historically to see how are they establishing anal sex. And of course, they would say things like, this woman, this person has an anus shaped like a trumpet. So yeah. that means they have been sodomized. And so, of course, that means that they... Uh, you know, illegal because you can't catch people in the act, right? So you have to figure out these kind of you have to fabricate evidence almost. And I was trying to figure out what is this evidence you're fabricating on the basis of which you're cementing this identity of of homosexuality. In in contemporary India, there was a Matunga racket, for example, where you would have police officers who would come in normal clothes and they would sort of exchange a gay porn. And then um, while they were doing that, they would sort of catch the person who's holding mm. on to the bonsai, and this is evidence that, you know, you've been sodomized. And of course, that, that wouldn't hold in a court of law, but all these, most of these men were either sort of married or they were not out of their families. And so, you know, what the police was doing was not using the act, but using the anxiety of the act to prey on, 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 on these people, right? Because mm. if someone was, if someone knew the act, they knew that this, these are not evidence that sort of hold in a court of law. And so I was constantly chafing at the uh, platitudes and the rhetoric of the movement at that time. And I remember the, the reason I wrote that piece was because uh, Shashi Tharoor had very movingly spoken about in favor of sort of getting the 377 abolished. And he had said that he sort of located homophobia in the colonial period. He was like before, he sort of located that as a sort of starting point, the origin story of, of homophobia. And I was very unsure of that it made sense right like it, it it's a it's a convenient narrative to have but i was just not sure because what is the raw material what is the evidence what's the data on the basis of which you're saying this hmm. you know uh it's not like 
pre-British India was sort of some queer heaven, right? There's there's a lot of evidence of what of, of the violence that was being inflicted on queer bodies, even as they were, you know, part of the courts, as they were part of the royal, uh, the palanquins and this and that. Uh, so the paper came from just trying to investigate historically where is this homophobia coming from? Can we look at alternative ways of thinking about of, of Section 377? And so I've always shifted the idea of these convenient ways of talking about uh, of, of queerness specifically. Um, and I don't know how much of that is my insecurity with sexuality that it could be that okay. right because one thing is that you're insecure about something and the easiest way to get over that or get through that or get by that is by logic trying to use logic as a sort of coping mechanism to get through whatever you're feeling i've done this a lot growing up and i suppose this might be just one incarnation of that you know uh me being very uncomfortable with this idea of queer solidarity and so i'm using logic to get over that i'm trying to use sort of philosophical arguments to sort of dilly dally around it that might be my limitation as, as as someone who's still figuring out what my relationship to the larger queer community is uh but yeah i suppose that's what when i think about Right now, my relationship with queerness, it's, it's entirely about desire, right? Because I, for me, I think that's so fundamental to queerness. And I bring that into a lot of my writing. I bring that into a lot of how I think about films, how I think about books. Um, I was talking to a friend over, you know, really old monk and Chinese bale and the other night. And I said something and I thought, my God, I said it. And... Um, it made sense. It was something that just like yanked out of my body. I didn't really think think this through. Just like, if you want to take a character seriously, you give them desire in a book, in a film. Hmm. And perhaps that's one way to think about what, which are the characters the filmmaker, the director, the writer does not want to take seriously. You know, the one that they don't give desire to is the one that they don't. It's, it's just a hypothesis that I just sort of spilled out in that moment. Uh but I think largely right now, as it is, my relationship with queerness is one of, of desire. And uh, I'm trying to figure out the larger politics of it, right? Because I'm still, uh, I don't, I don't philosophically understand a lot of the positions that people in the queer community take. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to, agree to it simply because it seems the most convenient thing to do but I also don't want to question it in a way that antagonizes people right hmm. I think a, a lot of the things within the queer community I mean and I feel is that when people question you you feel that they're sort of wielding an axe at you because that concept of fruitful discussion and questioning is just so rare um, and I felt this when people asked me about my queerness for example right like I, I don't feel they're questioning as much as accusing me through okay. the format and the garb of a question. Um, and so I, I suppose that's also my um, discomfort with asking questions around queerness. So it's a little, it's not a very clear answer because it's not very clear in my head. No, so that and that's fine. I think it's just, but I think it's just important to have different perspectives on this. And I know at least with the podcast, I 
at least try to get different perspectives on this because I've had two guests previously on season one, uh, Mega Vasudevan and Sosha, who spoke about this, you know, um, and they had very di- different perspectives on this as well. And it, I think it's just important to have it out there for people to listen to and understand, because I think that's what we really lack today. Um, so, yeah, more power to you uh, on that. And yeah, the other thing I wanted to ask you is that you've also kind of moved around a lot, right? In terms, like while growing up in terms of schools or cities and countries and just generally throughout life. So what has kind of belonging and identity been like for you? You know, sort of belonging to a place and I guess identifying in a way. So I was um, traveling around Humpty last year and I there were these temples these eight six to eight century temples so this so we are not Hampi sorry near our Hampi went to like Ayole Badami and Patarakal so there yeah these six to eight century temples that were just there and people were living in their midst right so there was this temple that was probably in the seventh century and you had men just it was a sunday morning and you had men just sitting on the temple it's not a temple where people actively pray anymore it's just an up sort of a place almost and they were just there smoking their beadies uh, a woman was washing clothes against the rocks of that other temple and like part of me was like thinking how they were they're so the, it, it's just such a natural part of the landscape they refuse mm. to take it out this temple and pretend that it's this great heritage and take care of it like heritage they want to take care of it the way they take care of their own houses or they mm. stay in it or they use it the way they stay do their houses but me sort of being parachuted in with all of this historical knowledge and all of this perspective and all of that there's a fundamental alienation I feel from that life that lifestyle, that way of thinking, right? I'm just not able to think like that. The first thing that comes to my head is that this woman is washing her clothes against rocks with sculptures <laughs> and reliefs from the 7th century. Like, a mm. part of my heart was like, what is going on? <laughs> part of my heart is also like, why should heritage be out there? Why can it not be part of the life? Why can it not erode with that culture? Mm. You know, what is this desire for preservation for centuries that we have this human instinct. But what I want to bring out through this anecdote is that what I've often felt is that uh, a great distance from any place that I've been in, okay. that distance has provided me perspective that people there wouldn't have, but I've also been fundamentally alienated from these places. Okay. So I grew up in Dubai and hmm. I've, I can never grew up in Dubai and Chennai for a bit. And I've never been able to either master the languages. Like I can speak Tamil. I can barely speak Arabic. I can't speak Arabic, honestly. I can read it. Um, but so it's just a fundamental distance from that culture that is always there in my head. What that allows me, that distance allows me a different kind of perspective, right? Which people there wouldn't have in much the same way that I cannot have the perspective that they have or just the ease of life with which they move through that space, Right. Because in my head, it's like Mahilapur. But Mahilapur <laughs> people are just like, it's Mahilapur, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, so that's just fun. Like, So this idea of belonging is a little complicated. And that's why I think 
Bombay is closest to home in some sense that I felt in a long time. And one part of me is trying to root myself here by learning the language and failing, of course. And Marathi is just that like every time someone speaks to me in Marathi and I'm not able to perfectly understand what they're saying, I recognize that there's a a distance mm. that has to be bridged. Um because you know, I think about Jumbalari a lot when I when I think about this, where she just sort of just moved to Italy, right? Uh, she mm. was in New York writing in English, and then she decided that no, she wants to write in Italian, and she moved the whole family to Italy to a point where she only read Italian books. She said she wanted to dream in Italian. That's the ideal, right? To dream in this language that just shows just how subconsciously you're at comfort with language or culture, um, and and so that is something that I've been in moving towards because. And when I'm saying that, I also mean is that belonging doesn't necessarily have to be a natural, incontestable thing. It can also be something that you labor towards. Like I'm laboring mm. towards belonging to Bombay. Um, this idea of belonging, generally you feel like it's just this innate thing, right? You just belong to a place. And perhaps that's true, but there's also this other way of thinking of belonging where it's just you have to put in work uh, to belong to a place. So I suppose that is the, the long and short of it. So it's just interesting to get this perspective because I've been in Chennai for most of my life and it's just sort of fascinating for me to kind of hear from people who've moved around a bit, you know, and what their take is on sort of, I guess, what belonging and identity and identifying as part of a place is like for them. Now we're kind of coming towards the end of this interview and we always end with these last two questions. So the first thing I want to ask you is what are your aspirations like what are you looking forward to in the near or even distant future well to just write more to be paid well to write more <laughs> on a few books and so hopefully those see the light of day nice um, i think there's this romance of a physical copy in your hand with your name on it you know that just never dies though print is dying but that that image doesn't die uh, <laughs> That I work in publishing. I will not uh, take this to heart, but okay. I mean, I also work in print essentially, and that's like every time I see it, I'm just not able to. Anyways, um, I think the rhetoric around that's a little scary, but yeah. So I think just to to write more, to be paid to write more, and to be paid well to write more, and uh, be read more. Yeah, I think that would be lovely. Yeah, for sure. And what is a piece of advice or learning you'd like to share with people? Um, can be professional, personal, creative, just something you've kind of experienced and wish more people were aware of. There's something um, that my advisor, Supreet called. So I was, this was after when I was about to graduate and I was trying to figure out between three experiments, which one I wanted to select and do and move to India for. One was in, two were in Gujarat, one was in Haryana. And I didn't know which one to pick. Um, and I was just, you know, it's, a, con it's a, a constant conundrum, right? You feel like you have these choices and all of them are just like equally appetizing and you think you're going to learn from all of them. And uh, she said something. She's like, there is no right choice. There is no wrong choice. There is just a choice you have to make. Uh, and I think that is something I always think about when I have to make a choice between two things that are equally equally exciting, but I can only do one of them. 
uh, because all of that always that worry comes in your head, right? Like regret shouldn't descend upon your heart. Uh, but yeah, that's something I think about often. That it's more than anything. It's just you know, it's one of those things like a, a not a mantra, but just a thing that to just remind you of. You know, like there's this lovely line in Urdu: "Ye raat badi tufani hogi, saath raho asani hogi." You know, just to just hear it. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to move you towards any direction in any sense. But just to have it um, on you all the time, like an amulet almost, to that help. Um, and also just the Jerry Pinto quote, which I told you, which is that is it is it easier to be smart than to be sincere? Is something I've been thinking about because I think sincerity. I've always found sincerity a little boring, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> okay then. So, yeah, but I I don't know. I've been I've been. Maybe I have to change my opinion on that, um, because the more I I can't stand irony anymore. Like I just can't stand sarcasm. Um, yeah. So maybe these are the two things that right now at least have been in my head. Yeah. And on that enlightening note, I would say we're coming to the end, but we're not because I want to do a fun rapid fire round with you. Because why not? <laughs> so this or that, movies or shows. Right now, movies in theaters and shows on my laptop. Okay, um, books or the screen? The terrible question. <laughs> How do you answer this? At I don't know. You dealt with both. <laughs> at night, books during the daytime movies. Yeah. Okay, fair. Written reviews or video reviews? Written reviews always. Okay, filter coffee or adrak chai. Filter coffee, ma'am. Don't you dare ask this question. <laughs> There's only one answer. I'm so glad you answered. Uh, that's the right answer. But yeah, anyway, um, an underrated movie, according to you. Underrated movie. Um, we have established Savarya, but moving on. Savarya, I think we've we've given it a little. We've made it a little rated <laughs> through this conversation. <laughs> underrated. If that's a thing, um, I don't know this. Have you seen Lutera? Yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to in in that film. There's this part where he says he wants to go to Chandratal, and that's the place that he's going to find most quietness and solitude. And um, then he dies in that film, and so he didn't yeah. get to go to Chandratal. And so this time when I went to Himachal, I was like, the one thing in my head I wanted to do was go to Chandratal. I couldn't because of the they had closed the highway, but. It's one of those films that makes you want to do stupid things like that. Is the <laughs> point that I'm trying to make. Okay. Uh, an underrated book? Underrated book? Um, Jesus. Uh, last year, there's this lovely book that came out called Name Place Animal Thing. Uh, it okay, was shortlisted yeah. for the JCB. Uh, mm. it's, uh, but it didn't make it. It's just a very sweet coming-of-age um, book. And it's, again, one of those sweet books that you didn't think existed anymore. Because I think right now the whole, the cut and thrust of publishing is more towards sort of like, you know, almost esoteric translations and like, um, it's it's just a sweet book that I thought deserved more love um, than it got. Hmm. Okay. What is the best part about your job? I say this all the time, which is that to, to love is to pay attention. And my job is to pay attention. So essentially, like my job is to love. Like I say this like a like a stuck tape recorder all the time. Like my job is to love. Oh, that's so sweet. What is the most frustrating part about your job? 
I don't get things, enough things to love. Or I get, like, I'm forced to pay attention to things that, I feel this is an awful thing to say, I'm forced to pay attention to things that just don't deserve my attention. And I, that's a really snarky thing to say, but it's it's just what I feel mm. most of the time. Hashtag liger. Anyway, <laughs> one line. Uh, one line for the following, uh, what you feel about these film remakes. Uh I think it's 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 fashionable to 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 demean it, but I'm very excited by how uh, hopefully some of these local stories will be culturally translated. I think that's something I always look forward to. Hmm. Uh, book to screen projects. Uh, I've always uh, admired people who want to do that. Uh, I just wish they did it with less renowned books more esoteric books like what Monica or my darling did for example yeah they take a book that not many people heard of yeah as opposed to like a suitable boy which everyone has heard of <laughs> uh, yeah or a Ram right now um, or a Shantaram yeah um Gazas uh I think it's uh it gives language to pain in a way few things can hmm. you know oh Okay. Okay. So if your life was made into a biopic, what would the title be? Out and about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And who would play you? Ideally me. I should play me. I think I'm... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> you could play Ali Sethi in an Ali Sethi biopic, but who would play you? Ali Sethi could play me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, then. Ali Sethi, it is. Okay, last question. How would you review this interview? Uh, just gentle, affectionate, um, full of curiosity and love. Oh, thank you. And on that note, we have finally come to the end of this interview. Thank you so much for being here, Pratyush. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Sangeeta, thank you so much for like the thought that you put into the question and the kindness that you gave to love me space to ramble. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Pratyush Parshuraman. I really enjoyed recording this and getting to know him and his story. Closing this episode with an excerpt from a story written and narrated by Pratyush. And with that, we've come to our mid-season finale and we're going on a short break. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you next year with a new guest and a new chronicle to share. Happy holidays and talk real soon. It's called, uh, this is the first chapter of a work in progress novel called The Garlic Renouncer and My First Love. He sheepishly asked me why gay men have so much sex. I was a bit struck, not because of the question itself. I would be lying if I said I hadn't thought of it, but I had always felt wary of milking that thought into a cold question that could be seen as much an accusation as a consideration. He had just, grad- he had just graduated from a verdant, polemical, womb-like campus to this violent city of my heart, his balding, influential father fixing him up a job finance something something with my then boss whose memoir I was ghostwriting not because she did not know how to write but because she was unwilling to make time to write slowly over the years she started mistaking the latter for the former
slumping onto her glazed table in pastel pantsuits, repeating how the years had made her shed her hair and her words. I didn't contradict her, for it was the conviction in her miscarried words that got me this job, after all. Our eyes collided for the first time in the restroom as I exited and he entered. It was just one second, the door swinging open as I pivoted away from the whirring hand dryer that cloaked my hand in septic summer breath. Towards the flung open slab of wood creaking at the hinges as he charged with purpose, briefly looking to his left, finding me, and the gaze lingered till we had moved further along a stride. That should have continued to hold on to the gaze, we would have had to swerve our necks in conspicuous desire. He was beautiful in a cursed, obvious way, the kind who would bite his lip confidently yet subtly as if he were in deep thought, as if he were unaware of the effect he had on those around, his face returning to my mind's eye through that day in hot flashes, leaving me flushed and longing. That quick gaze began yielding in my head a fantasy, a personality, a myth. I imagined him at a hazy house party in a loose t-shirt, routinely scratching his lower abdomens, a casual invitation to peek at the treasure trail, the soft tufts of hair sailing south from a shallow belly button, just enough for a half, just enough for half a clipped nail to be inserted. His lips were a gesture, an invitation. The ridge parting his nose from his mouth I emphasized in my head, such that if I were to trace the outline of his lips with my index finger, the edges of his upper lip would seem like a wave in a kindergarten ocean. I wondered what his name would sound like in my voice. I wondered how deep, how gruff his throat groaned in the reluctant sleeping mornings. I looked at my watch as I left the restroom almost instinctively and found myself back around the same time, the following afternoon, pretending to leak my bladder into the bone-dry urinal, looking around without causing suspicion or alarm, the sort of casual look of a man who is neither interested in looking down at his privates, spit out jaundiced bottled water or canned soda pushed through the vortex of nephrons, nor in staring at the magnesium white wall in front, painted in uneven layers that you want to scratch your freshly cut nails against. He walked in and stood at the urinal next to mine. There were three others he could have chosen from, I counted in my head, smiling. He looked down, but from the corner of my eyes I could see, or perhaps I was just imagining, a pulpy flirt combusting. When I heard his trickle, I realized I had just been standing there, expelling nothing, my privates dangling unnecessarily like dry laundry waiting to be folded in. I zipped up quickly and went to the basin, washing my hands thoroughly, soaping them twice, thrice, waiting for him to occupy the basin next to mine. He did. We blushed, staring at each other's reflections in the mirror, and he stood off without drying his hands.